Consumption, consumption, what's your function? I'm Torin Atkinson. I'm sorry, your chest is infected. We're going to have to amputate. I'm Joe Fulgham. Tuberculese, Greek god of the loogie. I'm Kevin Leeson. Childhood tuberculosis. Hey, moo means no. I'm Jenna Kapik, and this is Caustic Soda. It's the Caustic Soda Podcast! Yay! It's time to set the mics up. It's time for Tales of Woe. It's time to take the red pill on the Caustic Soda Show. It's time to do our research, unless your name is Joe. It's time to load the wiki on the Caustic Soda Show. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it makes me very hungry to introduce to you, Jenna Capic! But now let's get things started. Why don't you get things started? It's time to get things started on the informational, aberrational, strangulational, nauseational, strapped in for the Caustic Soda Show! Tuberculosis, also known as MTB or TB, the TB being short for tubercle bacillus. What does the M stand for? Mycobacterium. There you go. Who said that? <laughs> Hello, uh, I'm back. It's Jenna. Welcome back. Almost Dr. Jenna Kapik. Almost. That's ADR. The lesser known of the, yeah. the letters after your name. You've, you've received permission to write your thesis? Is that I have, correct? Yes. So sometime Excellent. between six and eight months from now, I'll make you call me and, doctor. And what is your thesis going to be on? It's actually on mycobacterium tuberculosis. Wow. The actual topic we've got. I'm so happy about this because that means I didn't have to do as much research. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, tuberculosis is a common and in many cases lethal infectious disease caused by various strains of mycobacteria, usually mycobacterium tuberculosis, as mentioned. Uh, Usually attacks the lungs, but can also affect other parts of the body. It's spread through the air when people who have an active MTB infection cough, sneeze, or otherwise transmit their saliva through the air. Uh, Most infections in humans result in an asymptomatic latent infection, Mm. and about 1 in 10 latent infections eventually progresses to an active disease, which, if left untreated, kills more than 50% of its victims. And just to put this in perspective in a a modern time now, because we might talk about some states of the disease previous to modern medicine, Mm -hmm. but uh, about one-third of every human on Earth right now actually is infected with mycobacterium tuberculosis. What? One-third of every man, woman, child. One-third of every man, woman, and child. That's Um, crazy. But as Joe was saying, only about one-tenth of these ever over the lifetime of the patient um, cause an active disease that are contagious. So most people just mm. have what we call a latent infection. Right. And mm-hmm. does anybody have an idea, aside from Jenna, who probably knows, uh, what fear of tuberculosis is called? There actually is one. I know. Tuberculophobia. Well, that's because I looked it up. <laughs> Tuberculophobia. Close, yeah. It's tuberculophobia. Oh, I oh. thought it was phthisiophobia. That's actually uh, tysis. It's spelt phthisis, <laughs> but it's pronounced tysis. I made sure to look this up. Okay. Tysis is Greek for consumption, so that's probably also another uh, okay. term for it. So it might actually it might both work. So speaking of different names for, for it, uh, tuberculosis has been called consumption because it seems to consume people from within. So well, yeah, when did we start calling it consumption and referring to it solely as tuberculosis? Is there a hard and fast like line? When did, we, or? when did we stop? Yeah, yeah. was there like, did somebody write a paper and say, hey, we shouldn't call it consumption anymore because now we know what it is. And it's not this like sort of like... I don't know, Jenna. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that it was as we start to understand the cause of the disease and that it's by a specific bacteria. Right. As more knowledge starts to build, you tend to start losing these nebulous terms like consumption, which really is relatively vague. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like just saying, hey, magic killed us. And you could, Our consumption humors. could also have been used to describe things like cancer because you get very much the same kind of wasting away. Other names for tuberculosis uh, that I found, tysis pulmonalis. Scrofula in adults. Ooh, scrofula. Uh, that sounds like a close cousin to Count Chocula. Oh, I was going to say it sounds like something that Princess Leah would call uh, Han Solo. It's a <laughs> scrofula-looking nerf herder. <laughs> well, scrofula, scrofula was actually a term for a more specific 
part of the disease, which is where you actually have a disease, not so much of the lungs, but of the lymph nodes. So you get right. swelling in your neck and under your arms and that kind of thing. Lots of people have really ghastly scars Ooh. on their necks because you'd have to drain these uh, lesions and you'd either do it drain with... Drain them a- of what? <clears throat> Uh, growing bacteria and, mm. and dead cells and all the mm. lovely, nasty Pus goo that goes along with that. Exactly. And the nature of this gooey, soupy bacterial mush uh, made it so that the scar didn't heal very well. So it takes six to eight months to heal. And so you end up with a really nasty, puckered scar oh, on your neck. Right. Scrophy. Scrophula. Oh. Uh, so we've also got Tabby's mesenterica, which I believe was for another type of tuberculosis that affected a different part of the body. Wasting disease, the white plague, because its sufferers would appear markedly pale. Oh, I thought that was another word for colonization. It probably was. <laughs> it was also called king's evil because it was believed that a king's touch could heal scrofula and Potts disease or gibbous of the spine and joints. Gibbous. So imagine the king's walking along and he's, all these tubercular victims are hurling themselves at <laughs> his feet. It's like, yeah, touch me. Yeah, I'm guessing that's why they called it the king's evil and not, you know, the king's favorite disease. <laughs> Just don't cough on me. I'll touch you. Don't cough on me. <laughs> it should be noted that uh, the POTS disease, as you're saying, is is usually to do with the spine. And tuberculosis right. can really grow anywhere in the body. People usually think of it as a disease to do with the lungs because that's its point of entry normally. And that's where you're often having sort of your, your primary lesions of the disease. But it can grow anywhere. So in POTS disease, you get tubercular uh, bacilli or the bacteria growing inside the vertebrae. And they kind of soften soften the vertebrae and all the bone structure, and it collapses. Oh, no. Um, And that's how you get hunchback. So it was thought that the hunchback of Notre Dame was a sufferer of POTS POTS disease. disease. Wow. And so best case scenario in this, you get get this sort of wedge-shaped collapse in this bend in the spine, and then over time it heals um, by sort of recalcifying. Mm. But most of the time, you'd either get it to burst um, into the spinal column itself, and so you'd get uh, paralysis or death resulting from that, or the grosser one, if it... Uh, <laughs> Wait, no, no, hold on. If, that wasn't the gross one? Oh, no. Have you not met me? <laughs> Bursting into the spinal column. So the, uh, the sort of, again, that, that bacterial soup bursts sideways and then tracks down along the muscle sheath that contains the muscles around the spine and goes all the way down your back. And you end up with this sort of pulsating bulb under your groin that's filled with all this stuff. No! <laughs> and, you know, it gets all, all pussy and disgusting all the way down your spine to between your legs. Oh, Sweet. Oh. Also usually ending in death. Oh. I need that area. <laughs> I need, my, I need my spine. I need my muscle sheath. I need my legs. I need my groin. I need it all. And as a throwback to the leprosy episode, there's actually a condition called lupus vulgaris. Mm. And this is uh, when you get tubercular lesions of the skin. And so they are these slow-growing nodules on the skin that eventually will ulcerate or sort of open into open sores, um, which you can imagine are really lovely. But how medical students were supposed to recognize the early nodules is because they look kind of like red currant jelly. Oh, nice. Delicious. I'm going to spread some of that on my morning toast. (laughs) I've got a couple more names. Miliary tuberculosis, which is uh, now commonly known as disseminated TB, occurs when the infection invades the circulatory system, resulting in millet-like seeding of TB bacilli in the lungs, as seen in an x-ray. And it's also called Koch's disease, uh, after scientist Robert Koch. Is that Koch? Uh, It's Koch. It rhymes with Loch. I was just going to say, what are these little TB bacilli? What is their... Raisin Dacha, what are they trying to do in there? Trying to F your shit Just up. trying to live? Just trying to live and reproduce? Yeah, they're an obligate human pathogen. So that means that they don't live naturally outside of the human body. They need an animal host right. to live. The mm. TB is actually pretty promiscuous in the... The animals Ooh, that it, oh yeah, promiscuous. Oh yeah, so you can decide whether you want a a human tuberculosis or you can get you know bovine tuberculosis too. Humans can get infected with that. Um, oh, I love it when diseases <laughs> cross from animals over to me. Every time I hear about an animal, a human catching an animal disease, I automatically assume they had sex with that animal. Yeah. I just go there. You you I do. I just go there. I, just you be, do go there. In You're going to feel so bad. have just gone to second base. In my brain. You have bovine tuberculosis. I'm like, that guy, F the cow. You're going to feel really bad when we talk about non-lung tuberculosis in children later. 
Oh, no. That cow molested that child. <laughs> That's right. I have the word origin. From Latin tuberculum, which means small, swelling pimples. From tuber, which means lump. Mm-hmm. So called in reference to the turbi- tubercules, which form in the lungs. So most of the time I was mentioning how you catch TB is through your lungs. So as Torin said, you inhale these droplets that people are coughing or sneezing up, uh, and it goes into your own lungs. And at that point, the bacteria usually is actually engulfed by one of the human immune cells called the macrophage, but just sort of any immune cell. And at this point, most bacteria, when they're engulfed by this, the, the body has this system to be able to kill bacteria. Mm-hmm. But there's something special about microbacterium tuberculosis that makes it so they can actually survive this sort of entombment by the human right. immune system. So they just kind of get wrapped up? Exactly. So they, they live and can actually divide and, and sort of replicate inside the human immune cell. So they're like glossette raisins. The raisin is the tuberculosis and the chocolate is the immune system. Exactly. And then all these sort of come together and, and have a little a little glossette raisin party and are then sort of enshrined by collagen and different sort of fibrous materials. And that's where you get the formation of this tubercle mm-hmm. or a granuloma. And it's sort of a hard mass. You can see it on an x-ray. It can even sort of calcify and become quite hard. And eventually, the cells that the bacteria are inside will burst. And so you have all these dead human cells and a bunch of just rapidly growing bacterial cells And eventually the whole sort of bacterial sac will burst. And that's when you get, it's called cavitation. And you get holes in your lungs and and the the bacteria can disseminate and spread rapidly and grow rapidly and break blood vessels and basically cause a whole bunch of havoc in your lungs. So the tubercules are kind of like a, a little nursery. Exactly. And it's actually in that state as well that you can get this persistence for years and years and years. So you might have a granuloma that doesn't do anything but sort of sit there right. for decades. So if Hollywood has taught me anything, <laughs> Hollywood has taught me that somebody has tuberculosis, they cough up blood. So very, is that, very true. Is that that's when one of these things has burst or that's when you, you just have that persistently? Is that just from these granulomas create bleeding or it's not until you get to that point where cavitation occurs? I think it's what you can have either sort of growing and... and um, multiplying tubercles and that can cause this low-grade bleeding where you have um, sort of little streaks of blood in what you're coughing up uh, and that's that, sort that of... That kind is the one kind where Val Kilmer has to hold his white hanky to his mouth so you can actually see the specks of blood. Right. Yes, so that's the right. specks of blood but then once you get this cavitation happening then the bacterial growth is so fast and destroys the blood vessels so fast that you can actually get these massive hemorrhages where you break big blood vessels and there's just tons of blood in your lungs and normally especially before modern therapies this it was one of these events that a tb patient would die from you'd like drown in your own blood yeah and you can die of blood loss too and you know surprisingly a lot of the treatments for these these bleeding episodes were bloodletting because you know if you're bleeding from your lungs you might as well bleed from your arm too (laughs) you're obviously have an excess of blood so we better get it out safely as opposed to out through your lungs. That's, That's probably what, what the logic was back then. I'm sure. Quick, get the leeches. <laughs> Swallow these. Well, inhale these. <laughs> Swallow leeches. Classic symptoms are a chronic cough, as, as noted with blood tinge, sputum, fever, night sweats, and weight loss, which, of course, gives rise to the formally prevalent colloquial term consumption. I really like that phrase, formally prevalent colloquial term, which is just a long-winded way of saying old-timey word. <laughs> And speaking of old-timey descriptions, there was a Roman doctor around 50 AD who mm-hmm. described this wasting of the patients and a couple of terms he used. So there's that only nipples mark the breasts in women and that the shoulder blades are like the wings of birds. So you're seeing just this this really incredible wasting of all right. the flesh off of bodies. It's really dramatic when you see it in real emaciation, life. Emaciation, like hardcore emaciation. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the, the blood loss and the gory blood pouring out of their mouth and all that kind of stuff. But uh, less spectacularly, you could also die of slow suffocation as the lungs became filled with the tubercules and the person just breathed less and less and then died. So that's not, they're not drowning in blood. The tu- tubercules themselves actually take up all the lung capacity and then yeah. you just can't and the breathe. The lack of you oxygen kind of... was stressful to the heart and it would stop. 
Ooh, I don't like that one at all. That's like asphyxiating. Just every single day you get less and less oxygen. You just breathe, Is today going to be the day I'm not getting enough? Yeah. Well, and actually a lot of the times these massive hemorrhaging events, because of that potential eventuality, would be greeted as a really positive thing by the family and friends that are nursing the patient because you kind of want to go the, the, the at, at a certain point, you want to go quicker. Nowadays we've got treatment for it. I've got a little bit of a write-up on that, but Jenna, I'm guessing you know a lot more. Uh, well, so the modern treatment, you basically have to use multi-drug therapy. Uh, tuberculosis is hard to treat. Uh, mm-hmm. It has to do with sort of the, the sheath of the bacterium is really hard for drugs to get through. So it's not something that, that we've had a lot of success with. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's it's 20 or 30 years since we've had a new therapy developed for wow. TB, which is really bad because there's so many drug-resistant strains. Right. And that's why you can't treat with a single drug. You have to treat with multiple drugs that both helps treat the resistance as well as prevent further resistance. Well, hold on a second. Where exactly is tuberculosis happening a lot? Because, I mean, I live in Canada, and I don't even know anybody who knows anybody who's had tuberculosis. In Canada, it's actually a major problem in Aboriginal communities. Mm. Okay. So um, historically and in, in a modern context, it's really a socioeconomic disease. Mm-hmm. So it really affects people that are disadvantaged in society. So there's a lot of tuberculosis in Africa. In the former Soviet Union has really horrible multi-drug resistant problems with tuberculosis. But really, there, are, there is significant incidence of this disease absolutely everywhere in the world. And there's also significant resistance everywhere in the world. One of the major problems in a modern context is that it has this this really lovely dance that it does with HIV. Mm. Because we have all these it people. dances with HIV. <laughs> that, that's the worst Tom Petty song ever, Last Dance <laughs> picture, with HIV. Picture the little, you know, bacilli dancing with the little viruses. As we were saying before, there's so many people that are infected but don't show disease. But that's because their immune system is keeping it in check. So you start to break down the immune system with HIV and suddenly Mm -hmm. you have all these transmission kind of latent diseases that are popping up and being more active. Exactly. And TB is actually the leading cause of death for people with HIV worldwide. Wow. I I thought it was pneumonia, but I guess they're sort of um, TB is related. The research I've done has shown that there's all sorts of things that can cause you to become much more, much weaker to uh, getting and dying from tuberculosis. People who get silicosis, which is a lung disease caused by inhaling silicon, have approximately a 30-fold greater risk for developing TB. And smoking also increases the risk of MTB infection, as well as the progression from infection to disease and the risk of death. Nearly 61% of TB deaths are attributed to smoking. Among children living with a patient with active pulmonary TB, passive smoking accelerates the development of active TB. Kevin? Yes? The vast majority of TB deaths are in the developing world, with more than half occurring in Asia. Oh, okay, there you go. In the past, I found this out, tuberculosis was the cause of one in seven deaths in the mid-19th century. One in seven, wait, uh, so of seven deaths, one one of them them was was tuberculosis. Yeah. That seems high. And the other six were stabbing. In in the (laughs) 1920s? 21% of all children under five in Ireland had non-pulmonary tuberculosis, so tuberculosis of the icky kind, anywhere else in your body. And most of this was actually caused by uh, contaminated milk from Mycobacterium bovis, as we were talking about. You can get tuberculosis from, from the cow version, and the farmer's were really reluctant to have any of their practices regulated. So they, although pasteurization was available, they fought it. Wow. And so 21% of children under five years old, this is where you start feeling bad, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Under five. Except for the fact that it's the Irish. (laughs) I would agree. I'm going to give you a birthday present of a big carton of unpasteurized milk. (laughs) But going to 2009, something more recent, a total of 1.7 million people died from TB including 380,000 people with HIV, equal to about 4,700 deaths a day. That's a lot. Yeah, it's so much more prevalent than I had thought before we started researching this. 1.7 million deaths a year. That's crazy. Yeah. It's actually classified as one of the um, neglected global diseases that, as far as research money... (laughs) Well, just because it it is a socioeconomic disease, then the people that are funding it aren't willing to shell out a bunch of cash for people that can't afford the treatment. Or poor people in Asia. Right. It's a bad time to be a poor person in Asia right now. However, it is a good time to have tuberculosis because we actually do have treatments. As long as you don't have extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis, which we can't treat at all, 
But before the modern therapies, this multi multi drug therapy that we use now came about, they used some some treatments that that were sometimes effective, but a lot more horrific. Oh, were these old timey treatments? Surprisingly, they're actually middle timey treatments. Okay. The old old timey, you know, you get as old useless timey, as they weren't necessarily effective at all. No, not not effective. Right. Such as like you know, drinking blood, eating a pound of mutton boiled in milk every day. Mm. You know, well, I could do that. Cure most ills. Uh huh. Cod liver oil, just because it tasted bad. Uh, rubbing lard into your body. Yeah, anything that tastes bad must be good for you. <laughs> and my personal favorite, uh, eating boa constrictor poop, you know, dissolved in water. Because I, I don't really know when, where, when, where when, the logic where would this come happen? in. Because your lungs were constricted. <laughs> so if you ate their poop, it would unconstrict you. I like it. Uh-huh. You'd be really good at coming up with old-timey remedies. I, I could have totally been an old-timey doctor. Totally could have been. <laughs> That's right. You could have been a barber, sir. Doesn't require any kind of knowledge, I just creativity. They did seem to recognize, though, that it had something to do with the lungs. So they pumped gases into the lungs every day. Was it mercury gas? Um, <laughs> no, but we have uh, hydrogen, coal gas, iodine, oh. turpentine. Oh. oh. Sometimes they'd um, pump gases into the rectum oh. <laughs> to, try and, to try and get to the lungs. And for some reason, uh, I think it was in Germany... They decided that uh, it had more to do with the temperature of the air than the actual content. So they would what? pump superheated gas into your rectum, mm. oh, which you paid a lot for. So I don't really understand who's saving up for that procedure. What's worse, <laughs> superheated gas into your rectum or into your lungs? Well, if that was my job inserting it, I would demand a high wage. <laughs> I guess so. That's true. Of course, it's expensive. So these are the old-timey cures that were not necessarily effective. <laughs> Let's just take away necessarily. Uh, I, air quoted, <laughs> I air quoted cure. Yeah, these, these were the cures that – cures. I'm going to use air quotes too – that didn't really work at all. Some of the more horrific things that, that really were put into practice and did have some effect was various forms of collapse therapy. Collapse therapy. Collapse okay. th- which is not when the people collapse, which you know would happen if you had no therapy, but where you collapse a lung. That's infected. Okay. 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 And you collapse. It seems like kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, no, you collapse one of the lungs that's infected to keep it from spreading to the other uninfected lung? The basic medical practices at the time, you want anything that's affected in the body, you want to give rest. So they would want to rest the lung. This actually worked because, not so much because the lung was resting, but because. By collapsing the lung, you're removing all the oxygen aeration so from that environment, starving the basically bacilli. smothering the bacteria, mm. as well as when your lungs are moving, you're constantly having this contraction and expansion and everything's all elastic. And so you can imagine trying to heal tissue under, you know, movement sure. that many times a minute um, is actually pretty hard. So by sort of immobilizing the lung, you're actually enabling healing and scarring and that kind of thing to happen. But so how do you uncollapse a lung? Well... Uh, sometimes it happens on its own. So one of the more common treatments was called artificial pneumothorax. Ooh. So I will try All and right. explain this. What you do... Sounds official. <laughs> the way your lungs work, you have one membrane that's attached to your chest, the, the outer chest wall and the ribs. And then you have another membrane that's sort of adhered to that just because there's no air in between. And that part is attached to your lung. And so these two membranes stick together and that's what makes your lung move with your chest. But if you stick air between those two membranes, then they separate and then the lung collapses in while ah. the chest keeps moving. Ah. Okay. So what but they do is do this the you would inject days. it with a needle. So you would take a needle and you'd stick it in between that space, hoping that you've hit the right spot. Would that spot. needle be full of air? Yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd pump them full of air until the one lung collapsed. I, how could anything possibly go wrong with this procedure? <laughs> and then you'd have to go back for refills every six months or so for and, a couple of years. And now what uh, What kind of era is, are they actually performing this in? Like what year? When does this happen? When, when did they innovate this kind of... I think it's uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Okay. okay. So, so not... So not, not too not long ago. Not that long ago. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're not complete bumbling idiots this day, in the medical field. This but this was the safest way of, of performing that procedure, okay. which wasn't that safe. Is this kind of like a, a, <laughs> which... a cure that succeeded in spite of itself? Because it, it, they had ideas of how it worked, but it worked in a different way? Yeah. Right. Okay. But it did, it did end up working, which always makes me amazed at the kind but of infections people can live through. How would they know which lung is the more infected lung and which one was the right one to collapse? Because... You know, they didn't have, like, chest x-rays or anything like that. It's true. And the, there was one thing that they did really well. 
Oh, yeah? And it was a really smart procedure that doesn't actually hurt you. Okay. And it's called percussion. And this came elevated to an art form because of tuberculosis. And so you just bang on different parts of the chest with your fingers and right. listen to the sound. And that is as complicated as, I, as it gets. And so people were actually able to tell the difference between masses and fluids and holes in your chest cavity in different parts. Wow. And so okay. just by this really simple procedure and having people hold their breath or breathe and just listening, not even with stethoscopes because they didn't even have those. Huh. They could tell. <laughs> and that is, that's, that's my favorite example of old-timey medicine that's not actually invasive. But if you don't want to fill your chest with air, you also have the option of plumbage, which is when you take uh, paraffin wax and shove it between uh, your lung and your chest cavities to, to forcefully collapse the lung. Because some people thought, you know, just you putting to, air in there with a little floofy. You know, you, gotta, you need to actually okay. drive a physical wedge. Yeah. So you can also, you know, shove cotton balls or glass balls what, or pump a full of olive oil. Wait, hold on a second. So <laughs> how did they do this? Did they actually, like, cut you open to perform these yeah, procedures? Yeah. yeah. And then put oh. hot, hot wax in between <laughs> your chest. Yeah. And did you say something about glass balls? Yeah, yeah, you can stick glass balls in there. Oh, good. But <laughs> don't don't punch me in the chest, dude. That's also not the worst one. Okay. Oh, oh no. So one of the most gruesome surgeries that kind of ever was performed on a semi regular basis I is called am, I am officially <laughs> cringing in anticipation of what she's about to say. And she's smiling. For the audience out yeah. there, if you can't tell by the tenor of her voice. <laughs> she, oh the laughing actually might give it away. All right, let's hear it, Jenna. So, if you you know, you can either gently collapse the lung with, with air, uh -huh. or you can shove some bodies in there, right? Uh -huh. But what's another way to collapse the lung? You could just make it so that there's no support for it to stick to. So you could just remove a bunch of ribs and muscles and stuff from the outside, oh, sew the okay. skin back over, and then you have this massive whole collapsed chest right. that the lung just can't expand. This is a more cannot permanent... To. Right. You can't, you're not surgery. bringing those ribs. And... Almost everyone, I don't know why they kept doing this, died of blood loss and shock mm. because it was the most gruesome surgery. I can imagine. People passing out left, right, and center trying to perform it. It was it was We're basically going to remove disastrous. your chest to save your lung. Yeah. So just remember, if anyone ever gets you drunk and offers you thoracoplasty, you say no. <laughs> just yes. say no. So going back in history, uh, I found out the earliest unambiguous detection of mycobacterium tuberculosis is actually in the remains of a bison that they found dated 17,000 years ago. So right. it has been around for a long time as well. Skeletal remains from a Neolithic settlement in the Eastern Mediterranean from 7,000 BC, so 9,000 years ago. Neo uh, meaning new and lithic, I-T-H, meaning stone. 7,000 BC, uh, the prehistoric humans had tuberculosis. So this has been with us for as longer than we've had history. Okay, all right. Three, written history, he means. Written history. Well, that's what history is, as we learned in From John and follow-ups for follow yeah. four. Mm -hmm. Three thousand BC, tubercular decay was found in the spines of mummies. Ooh, mummy TB. <laughs> and uh, in four sixty BC, the Greeks had the term tysis, as previously mentioned. That Hippocrates identified tysis as the most widespread disease of the time, involving coughing up blood and fever, and was almost always fatal. In uh, 1815, one in four deaths in England was of consumption. One in four. One in four in England. And by 1918, one in six deaths in France were still caused by TB. In 1918? 1918. In France. In France. Well, the French. In the 20th century, tuberculosis killed an estimated 100 million people. That's a lot of people. In the United States, concern about the spread of tuberculosis played a role in the movement to prohibit public <laughs> spitting except into spittoons. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. All right. You always wonder where those, because you hear... So like, why do people care if you spit? You're yeah. spitting on the ground. Nobody's walking so over be, there where I'm spitting. rain yeah. relatively shortly, and then and it'll that be washed would be away. And I just thought it was the, the unsightly look of a loogie. Yeah. There are also too. some really important sort of steps forward in public health that came as a result of TB, which you can, I'm sure, imagine based on how incredibly prevalent this disease has been. Mm -hmm. um, so... One surprising one that I found was actually the splint. So as we were talking about, most doctors want to, if there was an affected limb, really immobilize it and just give that, give that, um, a chance to heal or rest, whatever, whatever part of the body was, it needed rest. Mm -hmm. So one doctor had a lot of success in a lot of childhood patients with tubercular knees and hips and whatnot with just splinting them for long periods of time. So they didn't move the muscles. Exactly. 
And it, it worked a lot of the time. I'm not sure the exact mechanism of that, but then, you know, splints came in really handy on things like battlefields and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Also, you have milk pasteurization. Right. As we were talking about the... Louis Pasteur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He studied he studied TB. It was such a major problem is this contaminated milk because the cows that carried tuberculosis, either the human form or the cow form, would pass it along in their milk and then you can get tuberculosis of the intestines, which will oh, then go to your bladder and oh. kidneys. And it's just this horrible, 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 oh. crippling, awful, really pathetic disease, usually of children. As um, much as I need my groin, I think I also need all my intestines and liver and all the rest of that stuff too. Really important organs yeah. Yeah, yeah. overall. Yeah. As far as I know, there's not much tuberculosis of the appendix or else, you know, we'd be, we'd be set. <laughs> when they discovered, well, when it sort of became a consensus that TB was in fact contagious, then the the conditions in sanatoriums, which is where a lot of people went to go be treated for TB, mm-hmm. actually started to sort of show the, the modern practices we see in hospitals with floors that are really easy to clean and doctors mm. that, you know, have their beards trimmed and that kind of thing to maintain cleanliness. And a lot of the, the modern standards for sanitation actually were derived from the TB sanatoria. I also have a note that before the Industrial Revolution, tuberculosis was sometimes regarded as vampirism. Why is that? Well, when one family member died from it, the other members that were infected would lose their health slowly. Folklore held that this was caused by the original victim draining the life from the other family members. (laughs) As well, the people who had TB exhibited symptoms similar to what people consider to be vampire traits. They would have uh, red swollen eyes, which creates a sensitivity to bright light. They would dress in velvet. (laughs) They would dress in velvet. Pale skin, extreme. Extremely low body heat, a weak heart and coughing blood, suggesting the idea that the only way for the afflicted to replenish the loss of blood right. was by sucking blood. There's, I didn't find any notes that they would sparkle in sunlight, though. And the only way to cure tuberculosis was to plunge a stake through your heart. <laughs> Collapse the lung. There you go. Uh, famous people killed by TB. Balzac. Yeah. I mean, that, guy, that guy has got a comedic name, to say the least. <laughs> Chekhov. Anton, Anton not, Chekhov, not yeah. the Star Trek version. Mm-hmm. His uh, his brother died from tuberculosis in 1889, and it influenced his uh, tale, A Dreary Story. Mm. Uh, George Orwell, Chopin, Stravinsky, Edvard Munch did the scream, the painting, the scream. Franz Kafka, but near the end he was Kafka. <laughs> Pretty uh, much everyone, if you were anyone, you died of tuberculosis. Mm. It's yeah, anyone who's anyone. It's, it's a very poetic way to go. It really was, and people romanticized it to no end because a lot of artists and writers that were living in sort of the the dirtier sections of town, tons and tons and tons and tons of artists and writers were quote carried off by TB, and it was majorly romanticized, and especially to do with the, the paleness and the frailty of the skin, but with this unnatural flush on the cheeks. It was the Victorian era heroin chic. Absolutely the ideal disease if you had some sort of romantic bent. Yeah, we'll put a link up to uh, Wikipedia's got a great list of tuberculosis cases, and it it is surprisingly huge. You just scroll down and see all these names you recognize. We've mentioned a few of the uh, the more recognizable ones, but it is. I mean, when you're talking about an era where one in four deaths in the United Kingdom were from tuberculosis. You know, I mean, you're just by sheer numbers. Yeah, it's less surprising than you might think after you start thinking about it. Yeah, precisely. I mean, uh, I was mentioning to my mother that uh, we were going to be doing this episode today, and she told me a little story about my grandmother, her mother, who caught TB when she was 12 and uh, was in the hospital until she was 20. Spent eight years in the hospital with TB. Wow. It's crazy. Is that how she met your mother's father? Definitely not. (laughs) Well, lots of the sanatoria, actually, there were very different kinds. So there were some where patients were really subjected to all kinds of very uncomfortable treatments, especially a a lot of people thought that you needed better air or cleaner air. So there were a lot that were high up on the Swiss Alps and whatnot that, that you just had to spend all day outside freezing. The story that my grandmother used to tell my mother all the time, evidently, was because this was in Quebec. This was in uh, northern Quebec, so very cold in the winter months. Mm-hmm. And Very, uh, very cold. They would make all the patients at this uh, tuberculosis sanatorium sleep outside in the winter. Ah. So many of the patients would actually die from exposure. Cured. Cured of tuberculosis. <laughs> 
We'd like to say that most of our patients do not die from tuberculosis. <laughs> We've got a surprisingly high effectiveness rate. You think you could have a midnight stabber if you're after that kind of result? <laughs> But lots of the, the sanatoria, especially in Europe, were sort of more resorts for the rich tuberculous. Mm-hmm. And so there were all kinds of, you know, social infrastructure that was set up there. There were some that had their own golf courses. And many of them, after the sanatoria era started to kind of recede into history, were sold. And that's why um, Switzerland has so many ski resorts. Oh, wow. These are all like tuberculosis. Many, many of the, the Swiss ski resorts started as tuberculosis sanatoria. Kind of seems weird that you would have like anything to do with athletic pursuit where the people are suffering from tuberculosis and can't breathe. Hey, go. Oh, you only got one lung? Go play around the golf. Well, I guess golf isn't very strenuous. <laughs> Depends if you have a cart and a caddy. Yeah, you try. You try. <laughs> That's where you go when you get kicked off the PGA yeah. tour as a caddy. You're like, oh, go caddy for the sanatorium. It used to be called the TBGA. <laughs> nice. You got a, a caddy for your golf clubs and a caddy for you. Just this guy that carries you around. In a splint. Yeah. yeah and then hits the balls for you. And yeah, you got a ball hitting caddy. All, all you do is pick the iron you're going to use. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, no. <laughs> and don't forget, breathe that beautiful mountain air. You leave me breathless, you heavenly thing. You look so wonderful. chin of yours does so much to my heart oh give your lips to me for darling that would be the final touch to my heart you leave me breathless that's all I can say I can't say more because you take my breath away In the news. London, 2007, formerly news. A sacred bull seized from a Hindu monastery in Wales because he tested positive for tuberculosis has been slaughtered. The plight of Shambo the bull had attracted international attention since his diagnosis this spring and prompted an internet campaign by the Skanda Vale Monastery to save him. Of course, Hindus revere cattle and said killing the bull would violate their religious rights. So they don't have to kill him. We'll uh, do it. <laughs> there you go. 
More than 100 devout uh, and their supporters prayed and chanted outside the bull's paddock, but animal health officials and police led Shambo from the monastery to a trailer, a webcam site dubbed MooTube. Uh, <sighs> that... That is worth the entire article right yeah. there. Which the monastery set up to show the flower-garlanded bull in his paddock broadcast images of an empty haylined shrine. Spokesman for the regional government did not specify how Shambo was killed, but he sure was. Uh, one of Shambo's caretakers said officials had committed the most violent and ignorant act of desecration of our temple and destroyed an innocent life. The perpetrators of this act will suffer the consequences of their actions for generations to come. Discuss. Ooh, it's like a Hindu curse. Yeah, it's like it's, Curse it's, of yeah. the Cow. They can make a movie out of that. There's a new horror movie right there. Regulations <laughs> stipulate that cattle suspected of carrying bovine tuberculosis be slaughtered. The disease can be spread to other cattle, to deer, and in rare cases, as discussed, to human beings. Indeed. Um, I, I tell you, England has got a lot of problems with their cattle. Like, you got Mad Cow, you got Tuberculosis Cow, you got... This is Wales. The UK, it's on the same island. It's uh-huh. on an island, for God's sake. As long as the kingdom is united, then yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Until Wales separates. <laughs> going to have a mob of angry Welsh. Yeah. It's going to be hard for them to complain without any vowels. <laughs> a Welsh... that they mispronounce anyway. Like, everything ends in, like, Glengoogie. A uh, Glengoogie judge ordered local authorities to reconsider their decision to kill the bull, but the Court of Appeal in London reversed that decision Monday, ruling that killing him would be justified to prevent the disease spread. Reasonable or not reasonable? I think eminently reasonable. Kill it. It's like a cow. I, 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 here, I don't get down with the whole Hindu no-eating-cow thing anyway, at the best of times. I mean, they're missing You're not out. a religious man. Uh, I'm not a religious man, and I also... He's certainly not a Hindu man. <laughs> I, I also You're really, not a Welsh Hindu man. ...really appreciate every part of the cow. Like Every, every part? part? I've, every part <laughs> I've eaten so far, so so far so good. I had a prairie oyster once. Sure. Mm-hmm. Delicious. Well, it was deep fried. I mean, you can't really go wrong, right? June 6, 2011. Health officials investigating tuberculosis case at GTA High School, which is the Greater for? Toronto Area. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, health officials are looking into a single case of tuberculosis at Pierre Elliott Trudeau High School, but will not say whether it is a student or staff member with the illness. The region's associate medical officer of health told 680 News that there's no cause for alarm nor any need to quarantine people at the school. Search around for news. You're going to find that every once in a while there's an outbreak somewhere or they find a case and they have to research it. Uh, as a matter of fact, in this article, they note that there was one recently at a Vancouver middle school. This is kind of like uh, the much worse version of uh, some kid shows up with lice, right? And then all of a sudden a whole bunch of kids get it in their toques or whatnot. Yeah. Well, and one of the major problems is with lice, you can tell there's lice. You right. see lice. But it's actually not particularly easy to diagnose tuberculosis. I had to go for a tuberculosis test not that long ago because I do work in a lab where we study TB. The primary diagnostic tool we use in Canada is a tuberculin test. So it's basically um, they scratch your skin and sort of inject a little bit of this uh, mixture of tuberculosis proteins. And so if your body has seen tuberculosis before, then you have an immune response and this, but it doesn't say whether or not you have the bacteria in you, whether you've just been exposed to it, or whether you've had a BCG vaccine will have a positive response. So I was asking the lady, you know, so what happens if this is positive? And she's like, well, then we give you a chest x-ray. Okay, so how good is the chest x-ray at finding latent tuberculosis? Not very good. Okay, so what what are we doing here? Well, if this is a positive test, we give you a chest x-ray. And then basically, regardless of what the chest x-ray shows, we're going to put you on drugs. Which I was not super pleased about because the drug regimen for TB is not pleasant. Mm. So what they use in Africa specifically and and around the world is what the the WHO recommends is called DOTS. Directly observed therapy short course. So that's what DOTS stands for. And it's directly Uh. observed because there's all kinds of non-compliance. People just don't take the drugs because they suck. Yeah. They I'll they really TB. have strong, like really, really, really bad side effects, including uh, one turns you orange and all, all oh. your sort of body fluids turn orange. Well, but there's also... The flaming carrot. <laughs> yeah. That's what happened to the cast of the Jersey Shore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you have, to, you have to take these just really awful drugs for six months. And we don't actually have very good diagnostics. Wow. And you, those, you might not have it. You might not. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, but to be safe. Yeah. Well, I'll take safe an orange over 50% chance of death. Mr. Andrew Speaker was a 31, well, is a 31-year-old lawyer. 
from the States, and he flew to Europe for his wedding. While he was there, he was actually diagnosed with XDR-TB. So what this is is extensively drug-resistant. Most of these strains, we don't know what to do with, with modern medicine. Like, they've just, they're so drug-resistant that we can't treat them effectively. So he's diagnosed with XDR-TB, and so he does the next logical thing. He jumps on a 10-hour-long commercial flight with recirculated air to fly back to the States. All right, so really the the number one... Nobody told me tuberculosis was (laughs) contagious. The number one question here, I guess, is... They gave me the pamphlet, but I didn't read it. Is this is this guy a douchebag or an ass hat? Oh, he's an ass ass bag. <laughs> Douche hat. <laughs> so luckily, when when he was in the states and started to seek treatment and whatnot, they found out there was actually MDR, which is multi drug resistant, which mm. is treatable over a two year course of sucky antibiotics. But at least it's treatable. Mm. Um, and as far as I know, no one on the flight actually did contract TB, and they were all tested and whatnot with our amazingly the X-ray. Um, efficient yeah. <laughs> uh, techniques. But yeah, uh, as far as I know, there weren't really any ill effects, but but overall, n- a kind of a douchey move. Well, mm. yeah. I mean, honestly, a, a guy like this should actually be prosecuted for, like, you know, assault hey, or attempted murder. he said he was sorry. Assault. He might like, have been sued. I can't remember, but he might it might have been civil suits. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know what you can do to a guy criminally for something like this, but he certainly deserves it. I mean... Like you got to take other people's safety into consideration just a little bit. I mean, isn't this isn't this like the the lung variety of getting in a car that has no headlights in the middle of the night and driving around just willy nilly and hopefully you don't hit somebody? I don't know. Tuberculosis loves company. <laughs> That's so, a T-shirt. TM TM that. On July twelfth, two thousand seven, it was announced that seven Canadians and two Czechs will launch a one point three million dollar lawsuit, a civil lawsuit uh, in Montreal. Eight were on the same flight as Andrew Speaker, and one was a roommate of one of those on the same flight. Uh, So I have no update on how that has progressed. If we find anything else, we'll put it up on the website in the show notes. Pop culture. I mean, I've referred to it a couple of times over the course of this episode. We've got to talk about Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday in Tombstone. 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 Yeah, I mean, that's that's the one that everybody remembers because that performance was so fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he really... Really brought it in. Yeah, they called him a lunger in that. Oh, yeah. That's, huh. that's the term they used. It. I don't know. I haven't found that anywhere else. Certainly the most famous line from that whole movie is the I'll be your huckleberry. I'll be your huckleberry. Yeah, that yeah. everyone remembers. What, what a great line. What does that even line. mean? I wonder, yeah. I mean, was that written or was that ad-libbed? I wonder. <laughs> I wonder. It makes I me even... think of the red currant jelly oh, <laughs> from yeah. the Visvulgaris. Oh, yeah. Uh, nice. Uh, but, I mean, certainly. I don't think that's what he meant. Certainly, there's fantastic performances all around in that film, but Val Kilmer is the stand the standout for sure, mm-hmm. and it certainly would um, eclipsed the other OK Corral movie that came out that same year with um, Kevin Costner and Dennis Quaid playing Doc Holliday in Wyatt Earp. Oh, yeah, that was the name of the movie, Wyatt Earp. Yeah, and it was like the same year. They they came out like a month apart. And, I just uh, couldn't get past Kurt Russell's mustache in Tombstone, though. Oh, it was awesome. It was so big and ridiculous. <laughs> so awesome. But I bet you it looks exactly like Wyatt Earps did. In The Constant Gardener. That's the one with Ray Fiennes so. Goes to Africa, right? Yeah. Uh, they should have called it Ray Fiennes Go to Africa. Constant Ray Gardener. Ray Goes to Africa. I'd see Ray Fiennes Go to Africa. I don't think I would watch The Constant Gardener. I didn't watch The Constant Gardener. I would be Gardner. like, Constant Gardener? Yeah. How exciting can that be? I know. It sounds like gardening, especially grow, when it's constant. Grow, grow! <laughs> Wait a minute. Ray Fiennes is going to Africa? I'll watch that. Yeah. He runs up against a drug corporation that is using Kenya's population for fraudulent testing of a tuberculosis drug, Dipraxa, with known harmful side effects and uh, disregards the well-being of its poor African test subjects. Oh, so the actual plot of the movie is about tuberculosis. I don't know that that's true, but it's mentioned. Oh, Because okay. I haven't seen it either. Oh. <laughs> I have, but I just barely remember it. <laughs> that's a recommendation yeah. for Constant Gardner. <laughs> yeah. Have we got any Moulin Rouge fans in here? Because uh, I really didn't like it. I didn't I, like it either, but I'm a dude. I thought there were parts that were good and parts that were not good. I certainly thought the art direction was amazing, but I, I, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. I hate musicals where all they do is sing their lines and it's not actually a song. 
Like if you don't give right. me like a chorus and like actual structure of a song, if you're just like I'm going to the store and I forgot my keys, you I don't opera, care. Don't you? I do. It's called recitative. <laughs> okay, I hate it. So I didn't like it because of that. But I certainly like a lot of other musicals where they actually have songs. The last movie that I actually thought Nicole Kidman looked attractive in. Oh, okay. She anyway, plays Satine, a Satine. courtesan who looks great while suffering from a cough caused by consumption. Mm-hmm. She's able to belt out her biggest performance and then die. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler <And> alert. <laughs> then the whole movie, she makes up with Ewan McGregor and he doesn't get it. I don't get that. Maybe he, his didn't get active. Maybe he got it. But mm-hmm. True that. I yeah, bet he's it take, a carrier. It, it can take a while. Midnight Cowboy. Oh, I haven't seen that one either. Uh, I've seen Midnight Cowboy. Is he had tuberculosis? Uh, Dustin Hoffman plays Ratso Rizzo. Yeah. And he's dying of tuberculosis. Oh. oh. In the first samurai movie, uh, Zatuichi, Ichi's opponent, Hirate, has tuberculosis, and that is why he wants to die fighting Ichi. Oh. He wants a good samurai death. I've never seen Zatuichi. Well, it, it, there's a there's so many incarnations of it. Yeah. Right? Like it, it, became it became a, a TV, series. TV series, and then there was like there was even a series of movies. Like it's been redone, and then there was a Zatuichi. Uh, the Blind Warrior, just mm-hmm. like five years ago, that what got wide theatrical release, yeah, around the world. So it's, it, it, but this is one of the very first incarnations. It's, it's the very first one, yeah. Tuberculosis is actually really prevalent in all kinds of pop culture, even when it's not really obvious. So even things like the Hunchback in the Hunchback of right. Notre Dame are pretty much, I'm guessing, almost all Hunchbacks, unless they were d- sort of really explained away by an accident or something, are going to mm-hmm. be. Uh, tuberculosis, tuberculosis cases uh, for the most part it was just the most common cause of that type of injury or anybody's secondary characters or mothers or brothers or whoever who are you know dying in just sort of weak yeah pretty probably tuberculosis pretty common probably odds are you got tb right, yeah i guess that's a good case that's a good point i don't recall this though i've played the video game there's a video game a series called samurai showdown it's a fighting game much like uh, street fighter the character Ukio Tachibana is uh, coughing up blood quite often during the game, uh, which is a symptom of tuberculosis. And in order to heal himself of his illness, he seeks the ultimate flower. However, when he finds it, he instead presents it to his confidant, Kei Odagiri, and later finds another way to cure his illness, but instead gives it to his final lover, Saki. That's so right. And then he dies. I know. Hopefully the flower wasn't particularly, you know, contaminated by the time he decided (laughs) to pass it off. (laughs) Heavenly Creatures. I love that movie. Directed by Peter Jackson. Kate Winslet's first role, I believe. Yeah, she portrayed uh, Juliet Hume, who had TB. Yeah. And her fear of being sent away for the good of her health, probably to an alpine uh, mountain That's my resort, guess. <laughs> uh, played a large role in determining the subsequent actions of herself and the other character, Pauline Parker. Where really all she needed to do was buy a pair of skis. Instead of kill your mother. Spoiler alert. Yeah, well, it's from, <laughs> the movie's from like 1993, so I think I'm pretty safe. Safe. <laughs> Thank Wait, you. Wait, have you had your tuberculin test? Not uh, safe. Might not, not be ne- as safe as you think. Not necessarily safe. Jenna, thanks so much for joining us again. Well, thanks for having so me back. So great to have you. And now we've linked to it a bit, but I want to talk about it. You've got a blog now. Started, yeah. It's looking great. I'm loving it. I'm subscribed. What happens Google on reader. that blog? I am talking about interesting and new findings in all kinds of areas of science, usually a lot of, a lot of life sciences and uh, microbiological sciences, and basically just trying to explain some of the things that we're finding out that are cool on any sort of level. It's the kind of thing I would have loved to see on Bill Nye when I was younger. So just trying to explain to everyone how interesting there are so many things in our everyday lives that are really cool that I'm, I'm trying to share. And what's the name of that blog? And That's Science. And you can find it at? thatscience.ca. Nice. You are also a, now a regular host on another podcast, aren't you? That's true. A podcast and radio show, which is the Radio Free Thinker show on CITR, the UBC campus radio station. We discuss issues to do with skepticism in science and things that are coming up in the news and, and things that we find generally intriguing that we think we people should know more about. And seeing as how the CITR uh, tower gets you about like a 500 feet of coverage, <laughs> where on the internet can people find your podcast? Well, I actually found out recently that CITR streams through iTunes under the radio stations there under Campus Radio, as well as it's available as a podcast for the Radio Freethinker podcast from CITR on iTunes. At RadioFreethinker.com. I didn't have And my then you said, on. two more chips. And then we looked at you. <laughs> two then, more chips. 
Two more chips. Two more chips.